0: Welcome, everybody, to our latest series of podcasts entitled In Conversation with the Big Cat People, Becoming a Photographer. Each podcast begins with a summary of the career of the photographer we're featuring. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking with Brent Sturton, a senior photographer for Getty Images based in New York. His award-winning work has been widely recognised for its powerful depiction of issues related to conflict, health and environmental issues. Brent specialises in documentary work and is known for his alternative approaches to photojournalism, including lighting portraiture in the field and his prolific work rate. He travels an average of nine months of the year, working exclusively on commissioned assignment. Brent's work has appeared in Newsweek, National Geographic, CNN Traveller, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post Magazine, The Sunday Times Magazine, Le Monde, 2, GQ, GEO, and many other respected international titles. He also writes a blog for the Discovery Channel. In working to visually interpret a story, Brent often works in tandem with journalists from the world's leading publications. In the last two years, he's regularly worked with CNN's Christiana Amanpour and Anderson Cooper on topics such as the tsunami disaster or religious fundamentalism, compiling still documentaries on topical issues, events which are then voiced over and aired. He works extensively on humanitarian issues, including HIV-AIDS, environment, poverty, conflict and post-conflict recovery, and women's empowerment issues. Brent works on a regular basis for the Global Business Coalition Against AIDS and the Global Fund Against AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. He also works in the field for sustainability for the World Wide Fund for Nature, shooting global campaigns on the relationship between people and their environments and has worked for the Ford Foundation and the Clinton Foundation. Brent has won numerous awards and recognition for his work. In 2007, he was cited as a hero of photography in Pop Photo magazine and in 2012 received a Peabody Award for his work with Human Rights Watch for most significant work in an electronic medium. Other accolades include a National Magazine Award, 13 Press Photo Awards, 16 Pictures of the Year International Awards, the Natural History Museum's Wildlife Photojournalist of the Year Award three times, as well as being named the Wildlife Photographer of the Year in 2017. He holds a degree in photojournalism from his native South Africa, where he began his career photographing apartheid issues. So... Welcome, Brent. How are you doing, my friend? Nice to see
1: you. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's a pleasure. Um, You studied journalism in the late 1980s in South Africa, the country of your birth, bearing witness to the tortuous end of apartheid that culminated in the 1994 general election, leading to one of the 20th century's defining moments that saw Nelson Mandela inaugurated as the country's first black president. How much did that time influence who you are today?
1: You know, I think um, <clears throat> before that happened, Jonathan, I was, um, I was uh, in the military in South Africa. Um, and I think that had a more profound influence on me in that it was the first time that I really, you know, in, in an apartheid-led country, was spending most of my time with black guys. Yep. And that had a truly profound effect on me. So, um, you know, for the first time in my life, I had black friends. And it was apparent to me
2: that, um, you know, we'd been myopic as to what was happening in the country, um, living in our own little bubbles. So that's that's what led me to want to
1: become a journalist.
0: Okay, but you know, you studied journalism, right? So after, so the military service was that mandatory, or did you decide that's what you wanted to do?
1: No, at the time that was mandatory. We We had conflict in Angola and then Mozambique.
0: Right, and then... years,
1: 13 years, so yeah. long, long conference.
0: Well, and, and you know, it's interesting because 1974, I travelled overland from London to Joburg, and we had great friends who, uh, in fact, it was a priest, Simeon Nkwani, who became the first uh, black bishop of Johannesburg. And in 1974, arriving in South Africa with apartheid, full steam, um, it just like, you know, I it, it was off the wall. So I did experience that firsthand, but you studied journalism, and I think I'm right in saying you picked up a camera because maybe somebody else didn't want to be in the situations you were reporting on. And so you picked it up. Did it sort of feel second nature or was it difficult at first?
1: No, to be honest, I think I was very lucky. Photography chose me, you know. Um, I'm very blessed with that. Um, photography was an immediate and lifelong passion. That's it. So, um, you know, I, I was working coming out of the factional violence on the coast between the ANC and the IFP. Um, and that was very, uh, all the rest of the news guys were, were in Johannesburg and around that area. But, um, you know, I had done a long job with the task force. Mm-hmm. Um, and the task force at the time, they called them the talkies, were. You know some of the busiest soldiers in the world and they were doing a lot of house penetrations a lot of yeah a lot of violence and i spent two months covering them writing about them etc and that's when i started to take photos um and then i um yeah i couldn't um, i couldn't find a photographer to work with because they were all in johannesburg and they weren't interested in working with me so i i bought a second hand canon a1 I remember very clearly oh i re- I remember uh, i remember that one too yeah <laughs> with a squeaky shutter and um yeah fortunately it worked out from there you know so that's 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 how i started
0: now i know you came under or you certainly met and, and i'm not sure if i'll get his second name right but you'll certainly tell me james natchedway the american photojournalist war photographer who you've described as a mentor? I mean, what, what was your photo- was your photography looking very different back then? Uh, and what impact did he have? Was it both on a personal level, I'm sure, and as a photographer?
1: So I'd, I'd love to be able to say that James Wilden was a mentor, but no, we just met a couple of times. Okay, um, but I but the thing that happened in 1994 was that South Africa became the centre of the news world, you know, and. Um, before that, there was no courses in photojournalism that we could do. You could do a basic photography c- course at tech, but you couldn't, you didn't really have much exposure to the top news guys. Now all of a sudden you did. And because I could speak some of the language and because I had a lot of contacts in various townships, guys started asking me, look, you know, help us out to do this story and that story. Um, anyway, I, I met Jim Nachtwey at one point and I became aware of his work. You know, remember this is pre-internet, hey?
2: so mm. you know you
1: um, you were looking in books in those days. Um, what and, yeah, mm. I love, yeah, when I saw how he worked, and I was looking at Time magazine's coverage of the South Afri- of South, the South African elections. That was profound because he, the way he framed and the way that he worked off a highlight, or he, the way that he put things together, was both incredibly informational but also beautiful, and that that the pursuit of that has has definitely informed me ever since I've tried to try to make pictures that have a combination of those two things, you know, Um, and he always managed to, um, you know, attribute a certain dignity to his subjects. So that was very influential for me, certainly in terms of what I would hope to achieve.
0: And, and, you know, you, you talk about that you served in the military and, and I was going to ask and, and then I read that you had actually done that as a medic um, because I, I get the feeling, I think you've said it, that, you know, if it wasn't photography, then maybe at, at a, a high level medic in the army some way because, because, you know, you come across to me, you got a lot of confidence, you're a big guy and, and I do sort of think to myself, this guy could, well, coming out of the military Uh, you know maybe even special forces like angies bro was um you know worked with them in oman and and rhodesia and Mm -hmm. you obviously get into some pretty terrifying situations for the average person probably for you too i mean are you attracted to that in a sense or were you I, i i think maybe you mentioned that maybe you got over that attraction and and moved on but how do you deal with that part of it
1: you know i mean both are always very practical. And you try and work on the basis of good intelligence. But at a certain point, you have got to jump off the cliff, you know. Um, so you look in my early days, it was, you know, the, the fall of Zaire, the Rwandan genocide, the, um, you know, uh, the Somalia famines, the, um, you know, I had a lot about like, 10 years of African chaos, basically, you know, culminating in Sierra Leone and Liberia around two or three. And um, And I look, I wasn't a great photographer. I I definitely, you know, when I look back on some of that work, I really wish someone had said, please don't ever shoot with a wide angle lens again. (laughs) But um, yeah, you know, I made my way. Um, But in terms of it being frightening or anything like that, a lot of the time that's that's overly glamorized you know, it's, it's more you're much more likely to die from a car accident or from, you know, dengue, malaria, typhoid, any of the number of diseases that were that are out there too. Um, I think I'm more afraid of those things hmm. than I am of, of, you know, dying in active conflict. I think that after Iraq in 2003, 2004, after the first round of Fallujah, then things changed. And we really saw journalists become targets. And largely as an economic means, you know, um, mm. you know, way of, of extracting millions of dollars, um, but also as a political tool. But up until that moment, I think we were, um, we were, you know, there was some recognition of us as journalists and then the worth of that in the world. But that definitely changed after Iraq.
0: Mm. Um, the legendary, and I, I know, you know, obviously somebody that you've mentioned as. An influential photographer, the legendary Brazilian photographer, Sebastio Salgado, said, to photograph, you need time. You need to become a part of the community. You must discuss things with them. You must integrate. And you've said, that's the great thing about this job, the access that you get into people's lives. You have to embrace that. And in order to embrace it, you need to know those people before you go and see them. That's the key, isn't it? I mean, that seems to be, it, it's, it's not, you're just not getting in there and getting out.
1: It's the ideal, Jonathan, you know, it depends whether it's a news situation or whether it's long-form journalism. You know, the pressures of the news sometimes mean that you do arrive quickly and you do try to explain quickly. That does happen, um, especially if it's a breaking news situation. But the ideal is always to be able to spend a little bit of time with people before you start photographing and have them understand your intent, and also refine your intent for yourself. You know, Um, I think that's, that's really what this is all about. You know, what is your intention? Why are you there? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, as I say, you know, there are times where you are asked to cover a country in a week. And that's, those those are the difficult jobs. And they're difficult because you you're brushing the surface, you know, unless, of course, you've been there many times before, and you've already created, pathways to a deeper story but um for the most part i've been very lucky i'm not a news photographer um haven't been for quite a long time <clears throat> i'm a features photographer so in general um trying to spend a little bit longer on the ground to understand what's happening and also to you know to really establish the kind of relationship that allows you to make better pictures
0: i mean i was just going to yes. ask, yeah Brent.
3: Do you construct the photograph in your head, in your imagination? Do you find yourself, actually, before even you're on the ground, you're thinking about different ways that you can shoot a subject, a story? Because I find with your, I've always felt, Brian, when I look at your images, each image individually, you could just have one image and it tells the story. You know, you don't have to have five of your images, and that's a great art. Is it because you're you're imagining it beforehand?
1: Oh, Angie, I appreciate you saying so. You know, look, it's it's always work in progress, hey. Um, you know, like my greatest fear is fear of failure. yeah? Um, you know, I've I've had great opportunity to make reportage. For some of the best publications in the world. So, you have the greatest opportunity to talk about that subject. So, I want to do it well, you know? So, in some cases, sure, I prepare and I try and visualize what I'm going to do. Um, In other cases, and this is most often the case, um, you get there and it's different to what you expected. So, you make the best of it, you know? And you, you know, I just, I, I come back to what is my intention, you know? What am I trying to do? So, you know, I had a complex one recently where I was photographing an advocate for LGBT uh, group um, that has to have had to flee Uganda. Um, you know, so in working out how to photograph that person. Um, you know, that's, you know, she's not in Uganda, she's not in hiding, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then there's there's the pronoun thing as well. So I'm, I'm trying to bite juggle all of those things. But at the heart of what I'm trying to do is, is photograph a person who, you know, is not allowed to love someone else in the way their they feel comes naturally to them. So how do I work with that? You know, so I want to see pride. I want to see some hurt. I want to see the, element, the elements that I think come into the the being of that person. So you know, that's, that's just one example. But I'm looking to make photographs, which speak to that, you know, and in no matter what situation I'm trying to go, you know, if it's a person, what is in this person that I can, I can bring out that I can photograph, whether it's by lighting, whether it's by juxtaposition, whether it's by surroundings, um, what is it that I can use to, you know, Create a greater sort of source of information about the person or or the situation that I'm photographing, and sometimes that happens very naturally and easily. And other times, you know, it's a construction. Um, You know, as I said earlier, when we you have to work very quickly, documentary portraiture is useful. People often ask me, why do I do that? Why do I like? Well, a lot of the time, it's because I don't have time to wait for something to happen. I've got to move. Um, So I'm hoping that in the portrait that I'm doing, there's enough meaning. Um, you know, there's enough pathos. That's, so, that's where I'm coming from.
0: So Brent, just to clarify for the audience, and, and I get a little confused sometimes, um, as to whether you work in New York, but you live in LA, and whether you're self-employed, or what does it mean, the Getty connection? Just, just sort of explain to us a little bit how you operate on sure. that front.
1: So sure. I am one of the three chief photographers for Getty Images. Okay, I'm a star photographer for Getty. I have been for 20 years now, and uh, they've been very good to me in terms of like, supporting the kind of work I want to do. I, I live in California, about uh, 80 miles north of LA. I would like to live in South Africa, mm. but my wife has other ideas. Um, <laughs> so basically, I fly 25 hours to work twice a week, twice a month. And that's why I look like this.
2: I'm really twenty-two,
1: <laughs> but um, <laughs> this, is, this is the consequences.
3: How are you liking being a dad? Because we haven't seen you since you were a dad.
0: No. How old? Yeah, how old, how old is he, your his son? Right. Yeah, yeah. I have a son called Axel. He's five and a half. Hey,
1: um, he's five and a half. Um, but my wife does does the lion share there, and. Um, you know I you know I have tremendous respect for that she's been um, amazing in terms of how she looks after him um, it's it's a challenging job with having kids you know um, because I'm the breadwinner I live in the most expensive state in, in, in America and my wife doesn't want to move to South Africa so mm. I got to keep staying on the road um, but yeah you know um, having a child I think is making me a better photographer-
2: mm-hmm. you know it's certainly you know um, yeah,
1: you know, it's, it's quite incredible to, to come home and have this little thing rush up to you and put his arms around you. There's nothing like that. And um, I'm really glad I had that experience because there was, you know, I didn't think that, that, that would happen. Um, I was never focused on having a child. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'll tell you the story. It might be I'm not sure we should censor this one. But <laughs> I was editing about five and a half years ago, I was editing a, a job and I was in a hurry. And my wife came up to my desk and said, listen, I need you to take a photo of my boobs. And I said, um, really? Why? And <laughs> she said, because they're never gonna look the same again. And she handed me this sonogram. And um, that, that's, that, that's how she told me I, that she was pregnant. So um, yeah, no, it's been a bit of a whirlwind ever since.
0: How, that, that's <laughs> yeah. wonderful. And I remember we met your wife. Very briefly, and, and not only thought, you know, what a lovely person she was, but she also took a lovely photograph of Angie and myself. Just, you know, click. I don't know what she took it with, but and uh, she's a good lifestyle photographer. Yeah, yeah she, and, she is. Uh, and and I also saw a pic- yeah, I saw a picture of her with some huge contraption over her shoulder, looking very intrepid, on some kind of a trip or whatever. I mean, did she ever get it, or maybe now with the little one, that's not so possible. Uh, you know, but I'm sure in the future, there'll be lots of adventures. So just, you know, in terms of thinking about you, I thought about, you know, Great actors such as Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, who are known for their belief in method acting, getting inside the head of their character, almost becoming the character to try and capture their essence. Now, do you find that you morph into another way of being, adopt the ways of the people and their lives to get closer to the story, almost become sort of part of the team, so to speak, or do you need to maintain a certain distance to get the images you want to tell the story?
1: you know, I think you have to be careful. Yeah, you, you you need to remember you're a journalist, not an advocate. And that, you know, it often happens on the long embeds with the US Army or the Brits, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You get very close to those guys. I mean, I don't do so much of that. But the guys, my, the friends of mine I have that do that, they, they talk about this. Um, and that yes, that can impede your objectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in my situation, um, I don't tend to spend as long you know, um, as those guys, you know, I mean, I have friends who embedded with the US Army for two years. At hmm. that point, they really don't view you as a separate entity at all. You're one of them.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> so I guess to your question, yeah, I think you always have to remember that you are a journalist first. Certainly in my, what I do, I'm a journalist first. And I don't want to be an advocate because being an advocate means that I don't have access to both sides. Mm -hmm. and my job is to try and cover something as objectively as possible and that means you know if i'm working on rhino horn
2: um i want to do the conservation side and the animal tragedy side but i also want to speak to people
1: prescribing that as a medicine as a medicine in vietnam and people using it um that's a basic example but um you know i don't i don't want to be perceived to be someone who has a particular point of view okay i want to be neutral so That's, that's Amazing.
0: Right, but and I mean, must be yeah, sure. So
3: hard, Brent, when it comes to the issues that we're facing in the twenty-first sure. century, that must be incredibly hard for you. Because, how is it possible, or do you find it really difficult sometimes on issues that mean a lot to you, conservation mm-hmm. and things like that, to not feel exasperated and angry with what we see going on? You must on. put it in your
1: work, Angie you must put it in your pictures. That's, Mm -hmm. that's my, that's it. That's just, that's just an engine for me to try and report further deeper, try and make more meaningful pictures, you know. Um, But some things are clearly black and white. Look at Ukraine right now. Okay, it's, you know, you've been attacked by a superpower. There's no, you know, there's very little gray area for that for me, you know, it may develop something as it gets further along. But that's a classic case of good versus evil. Mm. But a lot of our stories are complex. You know, a lot of our stories, when you see what happens in the conservation world, you have to take into account the fact that um, some of the work that's being done, some of the destruction that's being done on the ground is being done by some of the world's poorest people. And what alternatives do they have? You know, So, again, a basic example, but for me, there are not a lot of clear black and white situations. There's always complexity. And my job is to show that complexity, lay it out in front of the viewer and let them make up their own mind. That's and, my job.
0: Yeah. and That's wonderful. And you did that because, it, it, I mean, it's a, an issue that we're constantly asked to talk about um, and the one of trophy hunting. And, and you certainly did a good job. You know, I don't mean to say good job in terms of you know, like that sounds. But, you know, you were able to portray what a lot of people would think, which is it's unbearably awful, you know, people killing animals for pleasure, you know, some big lump of a guy sitting on a lion. Uh, But the trouble with that issue is there is another side to the story, which there are some conservation values and people are going to be shouting and screaming on even hearing that. Oh, you know, hang on a minute. How could you possibly say that? But... You know, are you going to sit by and let the last lion disappear because you're absolutely not going to let anybody kill one to save 100, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But trying to actually portray the conservation pluses, boy, that's very hard, isn't it? Against those powerful, they should never yeah, be challenge. allowed to kill. The challenge. You mean, know, and look,
1: these are always, you know, something like a lion is an amazingly beautiful, dignified animal. You know, to see them in those positions, mm. it's, that's always tough. And, um, and... But at the same time, right now we have a conservation question of there's 6,000 captive lions in South Africa. I know. The government to to stop that cannon lion trade two years ago, but nothing has moved forward. And the reason nothing has moved forward is because there's no plan for those 6,000 lions. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, you know, we're in, we're in this difficult position now, Johnson. So on, on rhinos, on lions, you know, the captive populations now are very significant portions of what remains. So what do you do with those? Mm. And what is interbred? And what is what is possible to put in the wild? It's These are really complex questions. So for me, the hunting picture is just one picture in a complex essay. Yeah. And yeah. I, I need to do the essay. You know?
0: Well, and talking about need to do the essay, I mean, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, and some images certainly need no explanation to evoke strong emotions, but you also love writing, expressing your emotions through the power of the written word, you're thoughtful, sensitive, poetic. I love reading your your posts, you know, because it, it defies this idea that the picture's enough. No, sometimes you can add to it. Um, what authors have, have inspired your work? Does anybody sort of stand out? Do you, do you ever get time to read? I mean, it must be bloody difficult in the kind of pace you live at.
1: You know, it's amazing. um, I think we've lost a lot of reading because you can access the internet everywhere and everyone is on their phone all the time. It's, um, you know, as far as posting is concerned, I'm not very good with that. I need to do more and I don't. Um, You know, I'm still not 100% confident about doing that. You know, it's um, putting out my opinion into the world. It's not something I do easily. Mm. Um,
0: Yeah, but... um, in terms of reading who's been really influential for me i think cormac mccarthy um don't know that name you know either. for me incredible
1: writer you know um he's my favorite
0: really? he's a dark guy but, yeah but in terms of t- turn of phrase um you know you know the kind
2: of things where you're a line and um, you know you have to pause just to absorb what he said mm.
1: um yeah sure you know i mean my I would aspire to do the same thing with photography that he does with words.
0: And, you you, know, and I'm
1: definitely not there yet.
0: Right. There's more. Do, do you feel that, that, you know, that studying journalism and everything, I mean, is the journalist side of you still very much there? I mean, is it, it must help you as it gives you, gives you structure and thought processes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, yeah?
1: yeah it, it, it I, I start with the journalism. you know my job in most of what I do is to break it down into an A to Z essay. okay this is the phenomenon. this is what are the constituent parts of this phenomenon? how can I weave them together into a narrative that is the best possible communication on the subject? Thats That's my goal. That's what I'm trying to do.
0: And you know you working know, I sorry.
1: I don't always get that right but that's that's what I would aspire to.
0: Um, You know, working with Nat Geo, we've had a little bit of experience with them. And obviously there's a sort of methodology to the way they write. And sometimes it can be quite seemingly restricting because it follows a certain style. And for you as a journalist, with your journalist hat on and as a photographer, um, I can only imagine there's going to be, or I would hope, perhaps a book sometimes with the pictures and your words just how you wanted it, because it must be frustrating as hell sometimes. Or, or do you, how much How much part do you get to play editorially, not just so much in how, which pictures are used, but in you know, the captions and and what is being said that it actually evokes what you were trying to say?
1: Mm. Um, you know, so one, I, I've been fortunate to work with some very good writers. Okay. So um, I've only written a couple of things for National Geographic. Um, and the vast majority of writing I do these days is for grants, so that I can keep trying to do this job. You know, um, that's definitely the fact. Um, you know, as far as the frustrations of editorial are concerned, with National geographic, um, you know, you come in with a large essay, and I will always make a photographer's edit. And um, the editors that I've worked with at the magazine have been kind enough to consider that, that choice, they, they know, me, they've known me well enough to go all right, yeah, we, we think that you're a decent enough editor mm-hmm. to go, okay, let's look at this first. And then if, if they're unsure, or what, they'll go back and look for other frames, etc. But so I, at the beginning phase, I have some choices. But you know, there's Jonathan, um, the world of publishing has changed in the last um, six, seven, eight years, you know, the, the Me Too movements, the, the BLM movements, the you know the various movements that have, that have become part of our culture have changed how we publish these days and um, in general people are more cautious more considered mm. um, in many ways that's a good thing in some ways we've um, sacrificed expertise for demographics and yep. that that is that is a challenge you know for sure um, at the same time, you know, I never, I don't own these publications. I'm not, I'm not a shareholder in National Geographic yeah, right. or in Time or in any other great magazine. So, at a certain point, you know, you drop, you drop off the kids, and uh, you give them the, the, the pictures, and um, you give them your fifty cents worth, and you, you point to what you think is is the most important picture or set of pictures, mm. and then you go on to the next assignment. Otherwise, you you're gonna bang your head on the wall. Um, and I would say in most cases, probably seventy percent of what I would really like to see there is there. Mm-hmm. So that's not that's not bad, batting average, yeah, you know.
2: Yeah.
1: As far as the writing is concerned, excuse me, it's always a battle for space, hey. Eh? Yeah. You know, there's only um, there's only so many pages. Um, so um, I've had a couple of writer friends of mine resign from working for for Geo and you know, have gone on to write books and stuff because they feel that's the best medium for them. But um, I think ultimately you just have to be kind of a grown-up about it and just go, all right, it's not my magazine. This is the best effort I think I could have made on this subject. Um, if it's really something you feel is egregious, then don't work for those people again. But otherwise, I'm, I'm grateful
0: for the opportunity and um, happy to keep working. So does Getty... Are they sort of like an agent in terms of they're looking for stories for you or you're going to them? I mean, I imagine there's something of both. I, I, I,
1: yeah, I, I would say that I come up with 98% of my own stories, okay? Um, it used to be a matter where with geographic, um, they would come to me. But in recent years, it's much more matter of what you propose, Um, It's also a matter of how can you help the story? You know, how can you attract funding? How can you help them to do a complex story? Because I'm a little ambitious in the stories that I choose. They're never small Mm. and they're expensive to do and they're multiple countries. Um, These days, there seems to be slightly less of an appetite for that. So it does become... More and more important for me to to get a grant or to find multiple sources that allow me to put a big story together. I mean right now I'm working on on the theme of fundamentalism in conservation so how radical Islam is affecting conservation in Africa. Now that's a story where it's it's hard for editors to see the pictures mm-hmm. in a story like that it's a hard sell. Um, so the way that I will approach that is do it for multiple publications, little pieces, and then bring it all together. And ideally, put it in a place like National Geographic. But that's, that's very much how modern editorial works for me. Um, little stories for lots of people. Um, you know, a couple of grants along the way. Thank you very much. Um, maybe one, if I'm lucky, I can get a significant grant. But um, it's it's the bringing together of all those pieces. That is the story that I'm really trying
0: to do. Um, In 2007, you photographed seven mountain gorillas killed by poachers in the Democratic Republic of the Congo after spending years documenting the various aspects of the conflicts in DRC. People's reaction to the images of the dead gorillas was unprecedented, given that gorilla tracking permits permits alone cost $1,500 a day in Rwanda, $600, this was when I last heard in Uganda very few people will ever have the good fortune to see a gorilla in the wild your images help to fill that void what are your thoughts I don't
1: know I
0: (laughs) I think they do yes
1: I think they I think they they might have uh, woken people up to the fact that these are very fragile populations you know um, so Jonathan what actually happened with that picture was that the the um, there was a charcoal mafia made up of various generals in Eastern Congo. And that was worth around $50 million a year. And the only source of, of uh, hard hardwood for which to make the charcoal was in Virunga National Park. So um, those gorillas were actually killed to intimidate rangers who were um, trying to stop these people going in and destroying these habitats. So they weren't poachers, it was really an act of intimidation. Um yeah, and that changed, that changed a lot for me, you know, it became, you know, I've said this before, but we'd been making what I thought were effective pictures of the conflict um, in that region, but people were just sated with that, you know, they didn't want to look at that anymore. And so finding a different lens through which to look at what was happening, yeah, you know, that's, that's been my focus ever since, you know, so yeah, that's another instance where right time, right place, I was lucky, you know, um, I mean, you know, what, 18 months ago, I was really lucky to be in the right place at the right time again when the last survivor of that massacre died in the arms of her caregiver. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm blessed. There's no doubt that I've got some kind of little angel sitting on my shoulder going, okay, make this decision, make that decision. Um, you know, I've been lucky.
0: And there was that incredible uh, film, wasn't there, Virunga, which just spelled out the kind of... Issues and stories that, that you like to work on, which are incredibly complex, cover all kinds of other issues beneath them. And in, in the case of Virunga, of course, conservation, big government, um, uh, you know, people coming in, insurgents coming in, uh, you know, some kind of resource that everybody was wanting, quite apart from any political uh, you know, gain, oil. And and Soko, that you know, the big bad is the British, you know, um, stock exchange listed company. I mean, that was an extraordinary story. How did it end up? I mean, because at one point I, I we all sort of celebrated. You know, a million people signed up. David Attenborough, Desmond Tutu, Richard Branson, embarrassed the government, and then it was like, okay, we're not going to do that. Soko said, well, we never really intended it. And then you heard that actually, well, the DRC was going to take a different tack. Was well, why don't we just you know excise that part and then we don't have to worry about world heritage where are we now with that story have you, have you gone back is it still on your agenda to continue that story
1: yeah sure sure look I'm, I'm working on a book for the 100th anniversary of Virunga,
0: which is africa's first national park the yeah. second that was ever created in the world after yellowstone and that is for 2025 um
1: <clears throat> Look, there's no park in the world that's had as much trauma as Virunga. And, and the last nine months have been you know, trauma at an epic scale. So the film was useful. Um, and I think they did a great job with that. Um, but it's the kind of place that needs continued publicity. Um, you know, the, um, There's a number of new rebel movements in the area and um, those rebel movements have been more um, sinister and cruel than ever before. Um, we've seen more oranges dying recently. and mm. you saw the Congolese army coming into the region to combat these these groups, you know, committing many of the same atrocities themselves, but also arming my my militia groups, etc. Um, and thereby empowering these groups to do other things in the park. So um, I, I wish I could say that um, there was light at the end of the tunnel for Furunga, but it's, it remains i think the most challenging place in the world to practice conservation mm. and the irony of that is that as you mentioned with the gorilla prices it's a unique ecosystem you know um virunga charges around 450 dollars for their gorilla touring and it's the best gorilla touring of all of those that i've I've been to all three and i think virunga offers the best mm. um <clears throat> you know there's three active volcanoes in the region you know it's it's a really uh, unique biosphere so for me um you know, if you really come down to how we value nature and put an economic value on it, I just I just hope that Verona can stay alive long enough to recognise that value or for it to be recognised and they can be allowed to um, get on with the business of conservation.
0: You sort of brought those thoughts together in your 2015 exhibition, The Violation of Eden, um, when you talked about Uh, You know, comparing animals to children, they're innocent and they deserve our love, respect and above all our protection. As the leading species, we have a duty to care for our home and for all her inhabitants. Animals feel they have special order. They live in harmony, are capable of love and affection and a greater understanding of us than we give them credit for. In the same interview, you go beyond the emotional context to the bigger picture when you say the extinction of certain groups of animals would trigger a chain reaction of negative events in which the first sector to collapse would be tourism and with it the economy. This in turn would cause unemployment, poverty, instability and therefore violence and conflicts. There seems to be a sense of urgency to your life and work. You must feel burnt out, drained, working with the intensity that you bring to your vocation. Do you deliberately mix things up working you know, corporate, for instance, so as to take a breather from the other work, is there any photographic genre that you don't, that doesn't appeal to you? Because I've looked at your website, we love your work, but it, it's, it's so broad, it's as if you could photograph anything and come back with exceptional pictures.
1: I mean, Jonathan, that's just the consequences of, of you know, making a living, yeah? It's, if, if, um, if I had the possibility of only working on environmental issues, then that is what I would choose. Okay. Um, but I don't have that choice. You know, I can't make a living doing just that at this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, yes, I, I will shoot a couple of annual reports every year. And I'm grateful for it, because it allows me to, you know, to put to make enough money to um, to continue working on projects which don't make much money, which which I think are important. And i think most photographers most photojournalists at a certain point in their career will have that happen you know it's we just our profession is not that well paid for the most part so at a certain point most of us will have to seek work which is in order to keep doing the work which we truly want to do yeah
2: that's
1: just it's just our
0: lives yeah sure so Many of the situations you cover are are at the very edge of most people's experience. Uncomfortable realities, broken lives, alternative ways of being, whether gangsters or drug addicts. It's a very fine line between getting the shot, the decisive moment, as Henri Cartier-Bresson described it, the one that stops you in your tracks, and remaining respectful of the dire circumstances you're photographing. Are you there because you want to understand what makes them tick, Maybe it's both. Or because of the images it offers, that massive sensory buzz that our brain evokes in those situations. I mean, I can only imagine some of the places you've gone to, your eyes must have been popping out of your head at the photographic opportunities. It's a very tricky thing, isn't it? And you seem to manage to bring respect. Uh, You know, that's what I always feel, that that you're not going to be somebody, you know, walking over so, other people, mean, you know, to get the shot, yeah.
3: And compassion.
0: I compassion, yeah, it's absolutely. A, it's a huge but difference.
1: Thing, I think the thing that people don't understand a lot of the time is that you get this, um, you know, people are not stupid, yeah. They, they know why you're there and they understand, like, you know, I, I, I have really honest conversations with the people that I photograph. And there's often a very patronising attitude out there that you're taking advantage of people. But you know, I always ask, and most often, if it's very vulnerable situations, I can be there with a psychiatrist, a social worker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are complex situations. You don't just get to walk into these things, you know. But you know, I think you have to be responsible for people's vulnerability in the kind of pictures you're trying to make you know you have to go okay if you're going to be that vulnerable with me and allow me to photograph you in that condition or this exposed then um i need to find a way to do it which um, has some dignity and i don't know if i always get that right i don't um yeah but um you know if you're talking about um you know if you, the hardest stuff is just children mm. the hardest stuff is, is very young people
2: you know um i always
1: think that um you know your job is to is to record history as it were your job is to make the picture and try to present it in the most correct context you know it's it's all a matter of your intent because i mean these days anyone can cast dispersions on on the picture you've taken you know one can say well you've done this and you've done that but no one knows why you're there you you know more than you do um and so that's why your caption is so important. And that's why, you know, trying to make a picture where there is some dignity, that does matter. Yeah? Um, look, it's, it's an impossible situation a lot of the time. You know, it really is. And sometimes things happen very quickly around you. Um, you know, it can be a bombing, can be, anything can happen, um, and then you're forced to photograph. And, you know, that's your job, yeah? Um, you are meant to photograph what's happening in front of you there. And I I guess, for me, um, I mean, there have certainly been moments where I haven't photographed, you know. Um, but I um, but I think I'm not doing my job in those moments, but some things are, uh, yeah. Um, I, it's not
0: necessary, you know. I,
3: I, sorry, you love, yeah. Well, I was just, well, Jonathan, I talk a lot about the... Ethics or the morality of taking photographs wherever we are, whether it's wildlife or people, and we've have noticed in the the recent past that people, photographers tend to be really quite abusive in wanting to get whatever they're wanting for themselves, with no consideration. For us, it's usually about animals, so you know, stepping in front driving in front of a lioness trying to move her cubs trying to and they stop her from moving and there is a, a sense of photographers now just think it's all about what they want as opposed to thinking about the subject that they're they're trying to photograph so it's lovely to hear your sensitivity in the work that you're doing and I and I wish that yeah. That would be crossed over. Or I hope listeners are thinking how we can cross that sensitivity over to the wildlife in the national parks here in Kenya, which is being so heavily oh, abused by sure. too many cars, to You know, lack of sensitivity around the animals just doing their living yeah, their lives. Know, um,
1: I, I think a lot of that is based on the false sense of relevance. That is social media.
3: Oh gosh, so much so, so much.
1: That's that's where that comes from in so many cases. The idea that you know perceived status uh, outweighs any form of reality um, when it comes to what can you post and
3: um, how can
1: you put your lifestyle in such a way that it becomes um, desirable or more desirable than someone else's. Um, Yeah, you know, social media, man. I mean, there's been some. Really good things that have come with social media. You look at uh, the way things that played out in, in Iran or across the Arab Spring. So much of that occurred on social media. Um, but there, there is also a level of permissible narcissism that exists today that um, has done has done away with even common sense mm-hmm. um, when it comes yeah. to how we That's handle so our subjects. You
2: know, absolutely. So
1: you know, again, for me, a false sense of relevance, which is you know guiding those kinds of actions, which honestly, uh, it's it's reprehensible.
0: You know, Brent, one of the things Ange and I sometimes see in a picture, uh, I mean, certainly with some of Salgado's work, um, is sometimes a photograph can render a subject in such an aesthetically appealing and beautiful way that the circumstances surrounding it, poverty, Mm -hmm. famine, war, sort of can get lost in those circumstances you sort of feel it speaks to us of the things that bind us together love dignity compassion so but it is a sort of it's a strange conundrum isn't it that how photography i mean photography is an extraordinary way of communicating because the photographer can have one intention we can look at it and give it whatever meaning we want to there can be truths there which we can go back to and and enjoy and savor. But I, I I think I was thinking of a picture uh, of some I think it was a lady and and she's sort of face into the wind and it, desert, you know, probably half starved, maybe with a child under her. Um, and it's I suppose the
1: we, so, yeah,
0: I it's suppose a, it's the it's salmon, that incredible yeah. beauty that can come across when you see somebody who's holding on to their dignity in the most insufferable conditions. If you can capture that, that's magic, isn't
1: it? I mean, the thing with that is you're going to look at the picture for longer. Yeah. Okay, If as a combination of those values, you know, then you're you're going to pay more attention to the image. It will last longer in in the eye, in the mind of the viewer, you know. so for me, it is relevant to have both, you know, there is always a, deb- a debate about having images that are too beautiful within the photojournalism space. But, you know, I think, as, if it, as long as it contains both elements, you know, both the information at a high level and aesthetics, then I'm fine with that.
2: Sure. You
1: know, one other issue, Jonathan, is much more concerning for me. And that is, when you talk about how a photograph or an essay can can be, um, Really subtractive of, of the main elements around that story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we see too many stories about cute animals, um, animals that are in orphanages, etc., etc. Yeah. I, I am I am opposed to entire stories being about that sort of thing. I, I did one a little while a while ago um, on a chimpanzee sanctuary, and um, I did that story because it was so hard for those for those people to look after those animals. Um, it was also part of a larger essay on bushmeat. But when it comes to elephant orphanages, when it comes to, um, you know, cute stories about animals, mm-hmm. um, I think it's very important to, to um, not have that be the only thing that you cover. Because what it does is it, is it puts out a false sense of reassurance to the rest of the world. Oh, everything's good. And it's not good, you know. So, you know, seven out of ten wild pandas that are recently wild don't make it. Um, You know, so the Chinese PR machine doesn't talk about that. Um, When you talk about elephant orphanages, why are they there? Mm -hmm. And what do you do with them when they get too big to be cute? You know, um, what are the mechanisms of supporting those things? Those are much more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, great, we can have a cute photo of a couple of Ellie's and we can talk about some sort of um, anthropomorphized relationship. Um, there's, There's room for that. But that can't be the only thing.
2: Yeah.
1: That's, that's my take on it. So, but my viewpoint is, is, is less popular than it used to be. <laughs> um, there is more room these days for safer stories than there are for harder stories. Mm-hmm. That's a fact.
3: We were just talking about this, Brent, the other night and the frustration that we always feel when you're watching a wildlife documentary. And they're, they're mm-hmm. giving you facts and they are absolutely disastrous facts. And then at the end of the documentary, they always end with, but it's okay.
0: <laughs> it's going to you be know, okay. It's
3: going to be okay. <laughs> and you're thinking, but it's not okay. You know, they talk about, yeah. you know, we're not nearly over the edge. And, it, it'll, and we're always thinking, but we left the edge a long time ago. And if people yeah. only knew the truth, the absolute hard truth, maybe we would all be far more conscious about our behavior and our footsteps that's
1: just not the way that it is. You know, Angie, I mean, the truth is that there will be, an, an, some animals will remain in certain places and in other places they will be gone. Yes. That's yeah, just where we are. Sure. When I when I do the work that I do, I do always want to include some aspect of the positive. Mm-hmm. I do want to show that, look, there are people that are yes, working on this, something. they are thinking well, about that. And I think that's really important, of you know? Course yes, I mean, if you want to look at the cold, hard facts, hmm. it doesn't look great. No. You know, that's a fact. But it's, you know, what I have seen of the human condition is that if you do need to offer some aspect of yeah. hope, yeah. otherwise people will turn them away. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. Um, a little while ago, I was in Vietnam working on a pangolin story. And um, I spoke to a, v- a Vietnamese psychologist. And he told me that... Um, The advertising that the West uses to discourage people from using illegal wildlife products translates differently in the Asian mind. Um, And he said to me that actually what it does is it says this thing is running out, I need to get some before it's all gone. (laughs) um, So I I just, you know, that was interesting for me, because it made me realize that different cultures absolutely and things differently. So You need messages that are wide-ranging enough to incorporate all kinds of thinking. Um, Yeah, it's a hard one, but um, I won't won't forget that conversation.
0: Well, it's rather like a great friend of ours, Mitsuwaki Iwago, the Japanese photographer. um, He was talking about whaling. And he said, look, you know, all these protests about whaling and everything, probably perfectly justified. He said, but what you've got to realize is to the average Japanese, this was some years ago, a whale to them is what it looks like on the plate. It's food. It's something which traditionally you eat. So that emotional context to the kind of emotions that the whale situation elicits in the West is totally irrelevant. It's it, You've got to come up with some new way of addressing so, it, which fits the culture and has the right message from the right people.
1: The thing with, with the whaling stuff... Um in Japan, and with the dolphins, etc, is that what people are forgetting one is there's an entire fishing industry behind this stuff, that fishing industry votes. Okay, there's there's politics to this stuff too. Um, There is also a a sense of nationalistic pride. In with the Japanese, we see this with ivory in particular, they do not want to be told what to do. Mm. As a result, Japan continues to legalize domestic trade in ivory. Mm. So, you know, there's many aspects to this, but the individual psychologies of different cultures um, have to be considered in how we address these issues.
0: Yeah, that's that's so important. So two of your images stand out, the mountain amongst many. The mountain gorilla on the cross of bamboo evoked thoughts to me. My first was thought was was sort of Christ on the cross, crucifixion, and then to the killing of one of our closest relatives, the destruction of nature. The other was Yusuf defika 41 years old who lost both his arms to a lion attack on a fishing trip in the region of salu national park tanzania where angie grew up the attack took place in the evening in 2005 ripping his arms beyond recovery as he attempted to fend off the lion your image of an old man a relative perhaps maybe just a a kindly soul pouring water over yusuf's head was it an uncle um, to bathe him, is, is it was almost to me, again, I, I, it was almost like witnessing a baptism. It's so full of love and compassion. It speaks of the sanctity of life. There's a beauty to both images that's timeless. And, and I think that's what a great image does. I mean, we've touched on it before. You could show me, well, I don't know, show my children, your children, our grandchildren, a hundred years' time. I bet you anything you like, it would hit deeply into their emotions um but i don't i i don't know what was going through your head but in some of these images and you know i'm i'm not religious in the conventional sense you know spiritual you know a respect try and live the best life no old guy up in the sky going to save us but there was almost a sort of biblical feel to it um you know what how what was it like I was just
1: a Maybe that's just a reference point. You know, if you look at the vast majority of paintings, theaters, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, that's, you know, we have a long history as, as, as human civilization of being, those are the images that have led us for centuries, you know? So maybe, um, as far as, as Yusuf is concerned, um, I'm very aware of the hypocrisy
2: um, of asking Africans to do things that we in the West would never do. You
1: know live next to this national park we're going to have lions walking in and out of here um but we're not going to fence it okay um you know we're not going to create any job opportunities in these areas so you're going to have to sneak into the reserve to fish illegally so you can pay school fees um but don't complain you understand it's um you know yusuf described himself to me as a mouth with no hands wow so you know, that's a thing, it's once you become incapacitated in, in rural African culture, you are a mouth with no hands.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so he feels really, you know, he felt useless, because he could no longer provide for his family and his children. So his wife and children had a choice but to move away and seek a new life. And um, now he lives with his uncle, who's an aging person. Um, you know, I think you have to ask yourself the question. What responsibility does global heritage have to the people who live around the animals that we seek to preserve?
2: Mm.
1: Um, Yeah, you know, um, I think it's a really relevant question. Um, We demonize people for, for poaching for illegal fishing for timber charcoal. But we don't look at their complexities and difficulties of their lives. Um, You know, I'm a big believer in community conservation. Um, if they are not involved and they don't benefit then I think that you're looking at a, at a potential potential fails sooner or later you know yeah. no, anyway, the, sorry those, the,
0: are,
1: those the, are random the, thoughts
0: no but, but I, th- I think,
3: think Jonathan's Shorts as well because you talk about that on
0: yeah the, because you know the, I think we grew up in a time where national parks were well, certainly look at South Africa they were run like military operations they were a stronghold of Afrikanerism you know whatever you might want to call it but it was very regimented and it was like you know the enemy is people and we're here to protect the wildlife although ironically as you know you know predators were seen as these Uh, Something that needed to be controlled because the beautiful prey animals would otherwise go extinct, which of course is not going to happen. If you've got nothing to eat, you're not going to survive as a predator. Um, An interesting thing I've always felt, people working with wildlife often become celebrities simply due to the aura of the iconic or charismatic creatures they've chosen to study or photograph, the great apes, elephants, big cats. In his book, Ego is the Enemy, The Fight to Master Our Greatest Opponent by Ryan Holiday, he speaks about how you can be humble in your aspirations, gracious in your success and resilient in your failures and rely on confidence, not ego. Now, you seem to have navigated amazingly through that minefield despite all the awards and honours and people will know all about those in the preamble to this talk. But the fact is, you couldn't do what you do without being a team player as well as being that singular person with your eye behind the camera. I mean, you obviously, yes, you're there to click, to press the button, but the amount of thought and other people, quite apart from the the person or the people that you're focusing on, it's a team It's strange, isn't it? Because for most stills photographers, you can barely make a living. Nobody could ever say, I could afford an assistant, because you couldn't. And so, you know, you're on your own. Now, I know in your circumstances, because of, of the way you've managed to achieve success to the level you have, you probably do have an assistant or people helping you. But quite apart from that, the fixers, the people on the ground, you couldn't do the extensive stories you do without, you, you've got to get on with people, and that is no, a fact yeah. of life, right? That's true.
1: No, look, and I, I can't give enough credit to our fixers, you know. The bottom line is, um, I think we're moving to a point with AI where very soon you will be able to talk across language barriers. That's going to happen, probably within the next three to five years. But my, um, you know, if I've been successful, it is definitely because of, of the people around me as much as anything I'm doing. Um, that's a fact. I, I try to work very low key. So it's usually just me and one other person and that other person drives or I drive. That's usually how we work. And that person's main job is to help you with language and to navigate difficult cities, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's usually only one person. Um, in some cases, it's a driver and a translator, you know, it's a matter of what the budget is as well. Because the thing is, you know, guys, um, you can work much better with that in place. You know, you're not struggling to like, you know, those are the mechanisms by which the story works, you know. So, um, you know, I, I've got some good friends that have come out of those relationships, you know, guys that I can, I can tell them, look, I'm coming to India or I'm coming to Uganda or I'm coming to wherever. Mm. Um, those guys will be like, okay, well, I'm in the field, but I'll be out at this point or whatever. And we will try to see each other. And it's because of the experiences that we went through together and the character that we revealed to each other in that process. Mm. So they know you, you know, they, they, they know what you're worth or what you're not worth. You of know. course. You really see each other under pressure, you know. Um, and that's another really rewarding aspect of this job is you really do get to know yourself and the people you're working with um, because often
0: it's pressure. And that's when people really reveal themselves, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, the Amer- the American war photographer Robert Kappa said, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. But that might seem as if you're going to be right in the person's face, which is obviously, you know, not what you really want. However, I like the comment of one journalist who said about working with the 35mm lens, which I'm told is the photojournalist's, or one of their favourite standbys, but... By being fixed at 35 millimeter, it's not super wide, it's not tight, but it can be both simply, It can, but it can be both of those simply by stepping back or stepping forward. It forces me to think about composition, makes me work harder, makes me think more about layering. Now, what about a 24-70 millimeter giving greater flexibility for composition. That old idea of, you know, a prime lens is, is what, what are your key lenses for a lot of the kind of images that we're seeing that are your trademark?
1: I, I, these days I work almost exclusively with a 28 to 70 F2 Canon lens. That's, that is, I do 90% of my work with that lens. F2. And I like that because it's, it's, it gives me the zoom range Gives me the quality of primes, but it's not too wide.
2: Yeah.
1: And Jonathan, I, uh, so much of my archival work is just too wide. You know, there was a phase when we came out with Canon came out with a 16 to 35 lens, yeah. so did Nikon, et cetera, et cetera. And we were all shocked with that thing. Too, you know, too wide is too wide, really. I mean, it's just, when the people are curving unnecessarily, um, Look, it's taken me 27 years to really appreciate a 35 more lens because it is the perfect lens for photojournalism and documentary most of the time. The 24 to 70 gives you variety and gives you options and, you know, it allows you to take in more information. So that, as I say, like I use a 28 to 70 most of the time just because I don't want to go too wide, but there's no question as to the value of the 24 to 70s in that range. That is... That is the standard lens for most photojournalists because it is so user-friendly. But if you can be disciplined enough to shoot with a 35mm lens, then you will develop a classic aesthetic. And you will, yeah, the way that you arrange things in the frame, yeah, you're gonna line up more with historical precedent with like people like Brisson, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's, that's what a 35mm lens will do for you. It teaches you discipline and framing as well. You know, I mean, I, I do have certain jobs where I only take that lens and I do it deliberately because I, I want to exercise that muscle. Right. You know? Um, you know, Canada needs to, you know, we've been waiting for an RF35 or 1.2 or 1.4 for three, four years now. So right. I really hope they come up with that soon because, <clears throat> you know, if I have one of those and the 28 to 70 and the 70 to 200, then I am basically covered for almost everything that I do.
0: Okay, you know, but I. Yeah, okay. I saw also, Brent, that you, uh, there's a couple of 50 millimeter, the old sort of what we'd call a prime lens, but very fast, you yes. know, big wide aperture. I don't know if it's F1 or whatever it is. Is that more for your, you know, when you're doing portraits in more a sort of, you know, not in the field, rush, 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 which you, you know, you're talking about the benefit of these zoom lenses? What, the 50s, yeah, useful? The problem
1: is, the problem is always is how much can you carry? No. How that's much true. can you walk? With, you know? Yeah. Like, my, my biggest fear in life is that the airline weighs my camera backpack because that's 20 kilos. Oh,
0: tell me about it. You know,
1: and it's, you know, I'm just, I keep up a frequent fire relationship largely because of that. I just don't weigh my stuff, you know? Sure. Um, I <laughs> can't afford it to go in the hole. But, you know, look, there's a 51.2 that Canon makes that I use a lot. And that's, that's an incredible lens. I, I think it's every bit as good as the Noctilux from Leica. I do. Um, but what can I put in my bag? You know, and some jobs require that I take a 100-megapixel camera with as well. So I have a Hasselblad that I use for some of that. So, oh. you know, it all, it's just it starts getting a bit intense. I mean, Salgado, you mentioned earlier, Salgado will travel with six, seven assistants. You know, sure. and then he has his crew on top of that. Often it's 20 people. Right. But for us in the mere mortal section, it's just me <laughs> for the most part, you know.
2: So, yeah. Okay,
1: you know, so... All this
0: stuff amazing, so, so, you know? and, and we're... <clears throat> Yeah, I was I was just thinking because I saw something where you tested. Uh, I think was when um, Canon went mirrorless, and and you were testing the R system in in Namibia, and and I know uh, you know the R five. I think you say <clears throat> excuse me is is a, a, a camera that you use a lot. But the thing that actually I learned when I read that piece was how. The bane of angie's life is cleaning up dust spots off of my pictures because yeah. I'm, I'm messy and i saw that sure. you mentioned a feature which i didn't even know about which is this <laughs> the gate on the shutter yeah did you know this love no okay tell tell, tell Andrew, angie about this this was so exciting for a dirty photographer like me
1: yeah so the r5 was i think the first to come out with a gate so when you switch the camera off a gate comes over the sensor um you know, it's it's um, it's something that protects it from uh, from dust and dirt. The Sony A1 has that as well now, mm. um, but for the most part, that's been amazing in terms of dust and stuff, especially in the places where we work. You know, but that was one of the yeah definitely a, a big factor in favour of the R5.
0: And 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 other things that you would you know for somebody coming into the business, you know, got the money to buy a, a mirrorless camera, a Canon camera in this instance. R5 a good, 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 you know, because I know there's the R6, there's the R3 if you want to go faster and faster.
1: You know, Jonathan, I mean, honestly, we're just lucky we live in this time because great cameras that do incredible things are more accessible than they've ever been before. You know, honestly, if I was someone coming into the business, I probably wouldn't, you know, as a new person, I would probably buy a 5D Mark III or something like that and get a little bit of get a little bit of glass to go with it. But you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that you should put your money into reliable gear, it doesn't have to be the latest and greatest. Um, and then put your, the rest of your money into production. You know, um, put yourself in front of interesting situations. And then the, the, the latest and greatest matters less, you know, um, I, I definitely could do my job with a camera from 10 years ago, mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind about that. But um, but the low noise aspect of cameras like the R5 and the R3 and what will soon be the R1, um, that's, been a, that's, that's been amazing because you know, I often work in very low light and that's, that's for me the biggest thing. You know like One, the stabilized bodies, there's no shutter mm-hmm. banging up and down inside of the camera um, and the lenses are definitely, I think the microcontrast and the sharpness is slightly better. Uh, on the long the big 400s, 300s, 600s, 800s i think the quality is the same but mm-hmm. um on the other lenses especially the zooms i i think i'm getting a slightly sharper picture out of the rf lenses mm.
3: Brent, what do you what is your opinion on ai and the role that it's on going AI? on a and the role is going I'm... to play <coughs> um with us old timers in photography <laughs> you
1: know, the thing is um uh, it's inevitable um, it's it's here to stay but I think that what we're seeing is that it's it will threaten certain kinds of photography and not other kinds um, I think it it presents the opportunity to market authenticity better mm-hmm. um, and it creates two separate schools um, you know it's it's one of those things where for me um, photojournalism you know real truth-telling um, we need mechanisms from people like Adobe, Canon, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, that, you know, it becomes that much more important to be able to to brand an image as this is not an AI image. Mm-hmm. So I think um, we need mechanisms to reinforce truth telling. Um, no question, like when you see pictures of Trump in an orange jumpsuit being led into prison, that's an AI creation, well, then you have the opportunity for conflict. Right. So we need to be careful of that. And I'm sure that there are many nations out there who have some plans. For those kinds of, of images. But, um, you know, for the majority of photographers, I think it's just another tool in the shed. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, it's um doesn't have to be something that threatens you. Um, but if you are a person who's a conceptual photographer, you better embrace it. That's a fact, you know, because clients are embracing it. Mm-hmm. And they are embracing the idea they may not need a photographer. We don't have it at the kind of resolution yet, which makes for billboards, makes for advertising posters, etc. but that'll happen, you know, um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, AI needs foundational images. And I'd like to see that photographers are, are you know, the places where NVIDIA and these other groups are getting these, these, images from. I'd like to see the, the photographers who created the original content compensated hmm. for their part in the rise of AI, um, but, you know, when I look at what you do, and I think about what I do, um, I don't feel threatened by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we need to, you know, we need to guard against, you know, truth telling being stolen by this phenomenon. But I think that that's, you know, the great newspapers of our time, Adobe, the big camera manufacturers, they are thinking about this. And I'm hoping that we'll see I know that um, Santiago Leon at uh, at Adobe has been dealing with us and thinking about this for a couple of years already. Mm. So I see him and Adobe as a leader in this space. So it will be interesting to see um, what happens. Yeah. Um, But as photographers, we need to support these 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 things you know?
0: well i'm fascinated because i hadn't thought about that just that thing that you talked about with language i mean you know there's there's and i'm, I'm sure in the advertising industry travel brochures i can see ai you know you can just create any kind of fantasy you want to lure people to go there but well for, we put
3: for, our sat nav on and chose um we chose who
0: what was that love
3: Oh yeah! China's oh no, that was so Federer. funny.
0: So so we're we're dickering around in Europe in, in a car, trying not to crash on the wrong side of the road, and um, you could select Roger Federer, an AI version of Roger Federer's voice, to sort of smooth yeah. you sure. through. <laughs> so which
3: is sure. kind of sure. scary. So but it take uh, yeah, voice I suppose. And- Make you say anything you like.
0: But I suppose, you know, the thing that we're only just waking up to is, which younger people know, it's been here a hell of a long time. You know, we're just beginning to understand the bits that might affect us. Now, I know in conversation with a great friend of yours and and certainly a friend of ours, Mike Nichols, Mike, uh, Nick Nichols, the distinguished Nat Geo photographer, You said when you were discussing your work and working together on on, on a, uh, a story, one of the things I respect most about you is that you're not prepared to do any story in a conventional fashion. You're always trying to push ahead, whether it's with technology, framing, thinking, research. What technological advances can you see coming that are going to help you achieve your photographic goals to take them to yet another level, and, I, and I'm not meaning necessarily AI at this point. I mean, is there any, you did. You talked about a lens, you've been waiting for a long time for them to come out, or it's certainly on the wish list, you'd, you'd have a 35 mil F1 or whatever it was you, you said it might be. Um, is there any area of the technology that you can think of that will just, you, you, when you're out there and you're just thinking, shit, if I'd had this, I could have done that, is, is there anything that you see on the horizon? I mean, like I remember when we waited so long for the, as wildlife photographers, the Canon 200 to 400 with built-in extender. I mean, we were salivating over that like hyenas for years and we finally got it. Anything there waiting for you?
1: I mean, this will sound, this will be a disappointment for you, Jonathan, but <laughs> I, I would, I'm waiting for language, you know. Um, right. The thing I really want is I want to be able to have situation where if i'm talking to you know a, a pokot guy or i'm talking to a mongolian guy or whatever i want to be i want to be able to have a conversation with them in their own language sure and i think that's the technology that i'm most waiting for at the moment i think that will lead to better photographs certainly from the documentary section as far as um, as far as cameras and lenses are concerned you know, I'm a bit of a Luddite here. Um, you know, they put all these eye controls and they put mm. all this incredible stuff inside the cameras they use. And I'm still like using the single point and move it around my thumb. And I don't use a lot of that stuff. No. And I know that I should. But I guess the ultimate refinement of that is going to guarantee focus and that that would be amazing. Sure. Um, but the thing that the stuff that's still really valuable for me in photography, really still comes down to the person, mm. you know, it still comes down to like, did you anticipate this happening? Did you, you know, you know, if you're photographing, I mean, I had a situation last week, I was photographing a rhino and calf walking through a, through a, a sunset, but on an atonable lens. It was really very bright and very um, quite, you know, almost warped in the, in the picture and just trying to maintain focus through that kind of thing. And just knowing that you have it because it's an extraordinary scene, but do I have, is the sharpness there? That, those kinds of refinements. So that's interesting to me, you know. Um, but I, I still always come at this from the point of view is the camera and the lenses are the Ferraris, we're the bicycle. Yeah. yeah, it's the truth. You know, those cameras and lenses are capable of incredible things. And yeah. it's really up to you as the photographer to be uh, to come up to the potential of, of the gear we already have. You know, that's, that's what I think. Um, you know, it's, it's your imagination, your planning, your production, all of that, that needs to come up rather than, you know, our gear gets better and better. Because it's really incredible when you're really thinking about it.
0: Now, one of your trademarks is using flash outdoors. Um, but mm-hmm. you talk a lot, or, or we know now, that there's a huge ISO capability to allow one to use ambient light you know when it's very low would you i mean obviously it's a it's stylistically it's something that you like and it l- can look amazing but do you prefer natural light if you can get it or are there some circumstances where no you know what i just need a little bit of light into this person's face or whatever
1: so lighting is often a consequence of having little time you know it's it's i'm going to make a documentary portrait or i'm going to you know I'm just gonna, you know, I don't have time for the natural light, I have to move. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. Two, there are certain people out there that, that exist in the conservation world or other places that I think of, this person deserves to be lit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this person, you know, for me is, a, is an amazing character, right. and they should be that.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, thirdly, it's a different aesthetic.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's, it's gonna force you possibly to look at something just a little longer than you might otherwise those, those are the things that those are the main thinking behind my lighting things, you know? Um, yeah, you know, it's um, when we light stuff, you usually associate that with celebrities, etc. When you look at some of the conservation ranges we work with, or the, um, you know, environmental scientists, or, you know, whoever it is, um, I don't see those people as a lesser phenomenon than the celebrity section. Mm -hmm. So I want you to pay as much attention to them as you might a picture of Angelina Jolie, you know? Um, So that's, you know, all of that's part of my thinking with lighting. And there's also a lot of the lighting that I do. It's, you know, I have a, one guy with me and I teach him how to hold the light on a monopod and uh, I teach him to stay. Okay, look, I need you to stay at a constant five meters or whatever it is mm-hmm. from that subject and keep pointing it in a particular way. And that, that really allows me to work very naturally without interfering with the subject because, yeah. you know, I know what the exposures are going to be. And I've been doing it for such a long time that I can make pictures that, that look quite stylized, but which aren't at all. Mm. They're just, it's just because there's a guy who's holding a light for me. That's, so it's that simple. Yeah.
0: And and you've got your light meter there as well. I was impressed with that.
1: <clears throat> yeah, no, I'm still a big light meter guy. You know, I, I grew up with slide film, you know. Um, I, I came into photography when it was all slides. So, yeah, right from the beginning, it was light meters. And to be honest with you, I'm always a bit lost if I don't have one, you know. Yeah. If, I, if something happens and my light meter goes down, then yeah i have a bit of a
0: wobble and and, and yet <laughs> and yet you've got the histogram now that dreaded word i was so scared of that when i saw it i didn't even you know yeah, i don't, it, I don't Fr- at that at all but brent, <laughs> brent you'd, have, you'd have laughed when i when i brought that histogram up on the back screen i thought it was like a, i thought it was like a graph i didn't think it was like a representation of the light you know <laughs> in the different areas it was like okay what's the, anyway but um you said if you have a career and you're just trying to survive, like all the rest of us, but at the same time you're able to be useful, then that's a vocation, that's a calling. You have to listen to that. For me, that context is the natural world. That's where I'm of service. Do you think you'll still be doing this? You know, into is is it such a passion? I mean, you're such a passionate person. You're so well informed, and I love the way you take the small topic and and you you look at all the you know like the web of life you see the the threads attaching it to the bigger issues and the consequences you know go if only other people's you know our politicians and people did the same thing but is is the natural world that is is that your salvation in a sense the thing that just apart from your son and daughter and wife no not daughter yet and wife is is that the the place that really just brings you the greatest joy outside of family.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes more than family, uh, depending on my wife's feeling. Um, (laughs) You know, Jonathan, what I see is, is things coming together, Mm -hmm. I see confluence. Yeah. So I am hoping to do a story on planetary health next year. Mm. And um, that is a story which is all about how um, humans, animals and habitats are three parallel rivers that flow next to each other at all times. And if you affect one, you affect the other two. So my ideal there is to find 15 great examples of of how those things are all about convergence and causality, Mm -hmm. and try to photograph them in a way that makes that undeniable. I think we are very focused on one species and one phenomenon. But in fact, the world is all cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So I would like to elevate the environmental work that I'm doing by looking at things through that lens more and more. So yeah, I I can't imagine doing anything else. That's, if I'm lucky enough to be able to continue working on those themes, then yeah, why not, hey? It seems like a good way to live your life.
0: Absolutely, And, and just to quote you, we have so much more in common than we have issues that divide us. We live in an age where the world is more connected than ever. There's a tremendous potential to arrive at a common value system for our planet and for all of the Earth's inhabitants. In order to do this, we need to achieve a balance between man and nature that has to become a priority, that rises above individual and cultural values. If we're to avoid, to avoid inevitable and massive failure for our civilization, leadership... Will have to prioritize the environment as it, much as it does economics. We're in a race against time, but, and this is my thoughts, we're shackled with the brain wired for 50,000 years ago. For hunter gathering, for a live for today, there may, may be no tomorrow. Long term planning has seemingly never been on our mental horizon. We love what we know cling to our creature comforts, even in the face of disaster, relying on a propensity for an unfounded optimism. Where do, where do you see reason for hope? I mean, I know there's still a lot left, which we have to work on trying to do our best to to, to sort of, you know, protect. But how are we going to get the politicians and let's face it, billions of people who are living on less than a dollar a day. How are we gonna bring awareness? Well, as you said, maybe with common language or ability to talk to other people, but we, it's always been the problem for scientists and people doing great work. How do you get the politicians on board? Where's the leadership?
1: Jonathan, you know, now in this age where you're seeing great wildfires, Great flooding. Yep. You're, you're you're moving into this age where climate change is now a reality, manifest. Yep. Okay. So I think that politicians will have no choice but to move with this going forward. We I mean, you know everything that we're experiencing now is going to keep accelerating. So there's no way that we can avoid this discussion. It's a reality. You know, I live in California, and the wildfires are out of control. Look at the wildfires that have occurred around the world in the last year. They're everywhere. You know. Look at issues of flooding, et cetera. Every, you know, every weather event is that much more severe than it was. So those are all consequences of climate change. So for me, um, ultimately, you know, if you if you are going to be in politics, that's going to have to be part of your discussion. You just can't ignore it. You know, um, you know, people will. I, I just think we're at a point where um, they have to really talk about it. They have to act on it, and then the other side of that for me is with, you know, what Leakey said in the 70s, you know, um, he said, you know, we need to keep enough animals alive for a more enlightened time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the truth. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, we we're not going to keep everything alive, but we have to keep enough. And that comes down to wild spaces, animals, habitats, etc. Um, you know, <laughs> if you just think about animals as seed dispersers, just that alone, um, and the effect of that on forests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I th- I'd like to think that a green economy is becoming a real reality now. Mm-hmm. You know, that as we look at like what Lula is attempting in the Amazon, as we look at how um, they are, they are looking at that and going, "All right, what is green space worth going forward?" Even at, like the Congo Basin, you know, um, those places are going to have increasingly not just intrinsic but in but in but tangible value going forward um and i think we're in that space now we're in that age now where you know as we acknowledge the effects of climate change and we look at what mitigates climate change the environment becomes that much more viable you know while spaces become that much more viable in terms of going we need these spaces we have to have them so that's my hope you know i mean you know, human beings respond to crisis only at the last minute, mm. you know, but I, I really hope that, um, you know, leadership, I mean, it's so scary right now in terms of quality of leadership, we just don't seem to have a whole lot of good people, you know, but um, I think it's we are definitely in an age where climate change is undeniable. And climate change is part of politics. And, you know, if we're going to fight climate change, then the preservation of wild spaces becomes that much more important. There's a logic to all of this. So, yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but it's definitely um, a challenging and frightening time.
0: Well, I just want to sort of end here. Uh, You know, if you live in harmony with nature, you'll never be poor. If you live according to what others think, you'll never be rich. And that's Seneca, letters from a Stoic who... Our son reads uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, your photographs evoke deep emotions of gratitude, wonder or inspiring a sense of connection with our fellow citizens, the people and animals inhabiting the splendor of the world around us. They allow us to travel to far off places many will never likely visit. With people more mindful of the real costs of travel, your images become even more valuable. And... I think, you know, I've been so excited. I was like a kid swatting for an exam, trying to think. I had a first go at, uh, you know, sending you some questions. And I thought afterwards, that's just pathetic. Those kind of questions do not, you know, somebody who's done what you've done. You know, I really sat down and did my homework. And I hope that our audience will feel as privileged as we do. To be able to call you a friend and to be able to talk about your work thank you so much Brent
1: that's very kind of you you know and let me say this to to you know both you and Angie, you know the books that you've been putting out recently are really beautiful yeah it's really good work um, I see my job as supporting you know you are doing one side of the equation you like reminding people why these animals are so incredible and I am doing my job of trying to go, OK, look, these are some of the challenges in terms of keeping these amazing creatures alive. So I see our work as very complementary. And I think you guys have, you know, yeah, it's my, it's my honour to be friends with you.
0: Thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Brad. So lovely right. to see you.